On today's episode, we are talking to Grant Scott. We talk about education in photography, his history, and how he transitioned into photography after spending years as a commissioner. We also talk about what the future of photography might look like. It's a fascinating chat. So grab a coffee, uh, open your retouch software, and let's get to it. Morning. Morning. How, How are, are you? you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, sat in the shed, in, uh, admiring the birds landing on the feeder outside. At the moment. Oh, spring's here. Spring, spring is here. Sp- spring has sprung. You know what that We've means? We've had a few few good days of weather recently, and it has made such a difference. Oh, yeah. Just but everyone, just like, everyone's just, a lot happier. Yeah, everyone's out and about enjoying the sun. You know, you've got the lads who've already got their tops off. I'm like, lads, it's still like, it's six, still six and a half degrees. Like, just just chill it out. <laughs> Give it a couple of months. But, um, but yeah, no, it's it's lovely. The, 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 um, the weather makes such a big difference. It has felt, though, like that was a particularly long winter. Especially yeah. when I'm, you know, me and you predominantly are location shooters. So it mm. has felt like I have been shooting inside now for a long time. So glad yeah. to finally be out and about and kind of enjoying, enjoying not having rain dripping through all the flashes. Well, it's nicer just to get those longer days where the lights, lights nicer for longer and you kind mm-hmm. of, it's interesting watching it move around in the house, for example. Uh, I I try and shoot quite a bit with my kids, um, just like daily life, just grabbing snaps of them here and there. Mm-hmm. And as as we get into kind of summer, the sun moves around to a particular position in the house where it comes through the windows like late in the evening. Mm-hmm. And it is so nice the way it bounces off the walls. And it's amazing when you start to pick up on those little things, like the way the light changes throughout the seasons in a particular place. Um but it's also helpful because it actually makes it interesting to take pictures rather than in the winter when it's just grey every single day. <laughs> you just don't feel at all inspired. No, it's it, yeah. winter for me is all like just neutral. There's no like drama, yeah. no. Or there might there might be a bit of sporadic light, but it is like you know when you when you're kind of like shooting out on location or you're waiting for it in the house or whatnot. You're like, oh, quick, it's here! Go, 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 go! Oh no, we've we've missed it. We've we've missed it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll wait another twenty minutes for that cloud to come to pass. So, but how I, have you? I, um, have you been otherwise? You've been. How's your? Uh, uh, I, he- I hear that you've been. Your social media's had a bit of a change. Mate, I feel amazing. Like actually, I feel like completely fantastic, and it's because I have stopped giving a shit about social media. Um, I I don't know. I I decided about two or three weeks ago to remove the Instagram app from my phone. And so mm. my productivity has gone through the roof. Like, honestly, through the roof. And my happiness and enjoyment of life has also gone through the roof. But to be fair, I really should stop bouncing uh, on that trampoline inside. So the... <laughs> sorry. But the, honestly, it's, it's, I think, possibly one of the best things I've ever done is delete the app off my phone. I'm not yeah. doom-scrolling anymore, and I'm not comparing myself to others. Um, and I think we've talked about on the show that one of my favourite quotes is comparison is the thief of joy, right? Mm. Or maybe we've talked about it. Have we talked? Have we already covered this? Well, we've talked about it before. Um, I think it's it's an interesting t- thing, isn't it? Like I I don't have I don't really spend much time on Instagram myself anyway. Um, like I don't find myself doom scrolling on Instagram. Twitter, on the other hand, I find is really Oof. dangerous for that, especially because I'm a bit of a news junkie. So I love kind of, you know, reading up on what's going on and 
monitoring what's happening in Ukraine to some extent and kind of being interested in that from a, you know, from a geeky war studies history kind of background. Um, mm-hmm. But you just get dragged into it and it's and it's bleak, to be honest. It's pretty bleak. Uh, yeah. World news tends to be pretty bleak. Um, and of course, all of that stuff is about shouting, you know, trying to make you angry, trying to make you kind of really like react to something. And, uh, you know, politics is like that now as well, isn't it? It's all about just trying to get your attention by making you angry and making you upset. And it's mm-hmm. mad, really, especially with what's happened with Twitter, with Elon Musk. You know, it's changed so much over the last couple of months. The algorithm's changed, the way the stuff that shows up on your feed, some of the stuff that's there, it's just absolute nonsense. Some of the people that would have been booted off before are now back on. It's really changed the way and it's interesting to know what that knock-on effect that has you know talking about instagram like the way that they change the algorithm what knock-on effect that has to the way that people engage with the actual social media app it's well, interesting you know, interesting you talk the about mental health side of right? with with the algorithms it's um it's odd because my uh so i've been posting i, I kind of decided that i was going to take myself to delete the app and then i was going to schedule loads of posts Right, so I scheduled mm. three months worth of posts. So I've posted three times a week for three months, which you would assume would be rewarded by the social media network as they go, well, this guy is obviously being active on it. You know, the regular content's coming to the, the platform. We will increase his engagement or anything. If anything, the engagement's dropped from about 400, 500 likes per shot to now I'm lucky if they get over 100. And mm. as a result, I'm just like, all right, well... I'll go off and do jobs without it, you know. And my it would be fascinating hasn't... to know what that change is, though. Like, why that's if whether or not that's because you're not, you know, spending time on your phone, kind of uploading them, or whether or not, you know, are there ways that they penalise people, you know? And obviously, the algorithm changes oh, all the time, doesn't it? But I, I'm, I'm sure, sure there are sure ways there are. they're trying to they're they're trying to manufacture, you know, users' behaviour. Mm. No, I'm sure. I'm sure there are ways that they're they're, they're penalising you. You know, without being funny, I've scheduled three months of content, which means I haven't really been on the app. So they probably don't want to reward that sort of behaviour. Mm. Uh, at the same time, everything's been either small carousels, single posts, or um, I don't think I've put any video up. And obviously, I know that they're kind of pushing that. So you know, but then again, what what it, what it has done is I've just given up. I can't be bothered the- chasing the the algorithm all the time. I can't be the thing I found with Instagram is actually from a photographer's point of view, it's become a little bit, uh, I don't find it somewhere that I want to go to get inspired as much anymore because obviously they design it to, to work really well on your phone. But if you mm-hmm. go to the desktop version, they don't want people using it so much on the desktop. They want people to engage with it on the phone. So they haven't kind of optimized it for desktop use. So when you look at images, they're still quite small on the screen, etc. Mm-hmm. And I kind of miss the days when people used to have tumblr accounts and you'd go on there and you would have you know these big images and you would be able to scroll through and have a feed that was chronological but also if you followed people who were producing really interesting stuff it it acted as this kind of visual feast that you were enjoying everything that you were looking at and it was inspiring you and you'd come off feeling energized mm-hmm. whereas i find with instagram you kind of you go on and you every third thing is an advert or um, you know some reel of some bellend somewhere doing something bellendy, and you're just like, I'm just this just makes me miserable with the world. Like I'm not coming out of this feeling visually inspired, and I guess we've discussed this loads before. Obviously, when we had Mimi and Sarah on from um, 
before when we they, they talked about from dark light you know they talked about um, the visual diet and i really believe that that's a massive thing and i mm-hmm. think we discussed it before as well kind of having to manufacture your own inspiration to actually go out there and and work out what gets you excited and the realization that maybe things like instagram aren't the place to go for that and that maybe it's about getting a book down off the shelf and spending 10 minutes looking at that instead Mm -hmm. it's hard to share though share a book you know you can't then you end up taking a picture yeah. and putting it on your stories or something yeah and then that's but copyright then, but, infringement but, so but, but then for me is it about it's not about necessarily sharing that like if i'm looking for inspiration i'm, I'm literally no one else is interested in that that's that's just something i'm doing to nourish my own soul so that i can kind of mm-hmm. go out into the world and then produce stuff so ultimately you've got to question what it is you're ultimate goal is with it and i think with instagram mm-hmm. it's it, for me it used to be about finding inspiration but it was also about sharing work but then it became quite boring sharing work because the actual ways that you can share it are quite limited you can put up mm-hmm. a single image or you can put up a carousel but that's it you know it's not like you can play with the layouts or do anything particularly exciting no i was going to say like you know remember myspace and you could create your own myspace page and you, there were people who would, you know, you'd send a design to these guys and they would cut it up and you'd have all this amazing code that you could completely personalise this um, this page and it would be very much your part of that social media. I don't feel that any... I don't think there's a single one that's got that sort of personalisation. Just, everyone just has the yeah. grids. You know, everyone has the same access. Yeah. Well, we, we probably shouldn't talk too much about this because there's a potential that in the next few episodes we might have somebody on who's going to potentially have an antidote to this so we'll leave that there well what else has been going on you've been selling a lot of stuff tom i see i have now i'm not going to tell anyone why yet but all will be revealed in a couple of episodes time when i have the listener um, he's quitting photography and becoming a (laughs) can-can dancer in saint-tropez Actually, Paris. I'm going to go work at the Moulin Rouge. <laughs> um, Often, no, yeah. uh, that is a dream of mine. Uh, but I weirdly have only ever told one person that. So good to know. Good to know. I can't trust them. <laughs> um, no, I have been selling a lot of stuff. So um, <clears throat> I have uh, of of late uh, been thinking a lot about my anxiety, and I have been feeling mm. a lot uh, about how. Uh, various things make you feel and I realised that part of the reason I was feeling quite stressed or that I was starting to feel frustration with work was maybe that I had a slight bit of uh, and I'm sure as as I'm sure we all do um, a slight mild addiction to buying equipment and I think it's fair to say for anyone who's listened to this podcast for a while that everyone's going, oh, mate, the pennies dropped. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> um, but no, for, for me, it took a long time uh, to realise. And what's happened is that I've decided to sell actually almost everything. Completely. You know, I've kind of joked in the past about the great simplification. But now mm. this really has happened. I'm, se- I'm selling off actually almost everything. So I will have a camera bag, a digi case and I will have two rollers that are identical 
with the same flashes in. So it doesn't matter because I don't know if this is going to resonate with anyone. But I, especially for the people who own all their own equipment and then rent that out, I had a terrible loadout a few months ago where I had to load everything out from the house into the cu- into the van. Sorry. Mm. I had to load everything out from the house into the van. And then we had to drive that. that. That took a good couple of hours to load everything in properly. And then we had to drive up to Manchester and then had to unload everything because we weren't able to get secure parking for the van. So we had to unload everything valuable into the hotel, which meant that we all had to then get up an hour earlier than we would have done normally to then load everything back out into the van. And mm. then after the shoot, we drove home completely exhausted um, the the morning after, and then we had to load everything back into the office. And it took forever to load everything back in properly. And I just thought, do you know what? That happened in the rain. So everything mm. was wet. And I just went, do you know what? Enough. I've had I've had enough. Um, and then it's it's kind of really triggered all these changes. And as a result, I feel fantastic. So, mm. you know, the, these, if you look back at previous episodes, this racking was full of equipment. Well, now it's full of empty cases, really. There's some mm. stuff in here, and obviously I'm not going to get rid of absolutely everything. But um, instead of owning everything that I think I might need, I'm actually just going to own stuff that I actually do need. So there's yeah. no there's no kind of... Um, the There used to be, I really want that. Do I need it? Not really, but I really want it, so I would have it. Yeah. Well, now, do I want it or need it? If I want it and don't need it, I can't have it. And if I need it, it then has to satisfy three um, things. Is it going to save me? Is it going to make me money? Is it going to pay mm. for itself in two years? And if it, if, is it also going to reduce hassle or give me time back in my life? And mm. if it doesn't really fit any of those three, or all three of them, I can't really buy it, and I'll just have to hire it. I think a lot of photographers and not just photographers, but people in all walks of life kind of fall into this in different ways of wanting to, and myself included, you know, you see something and you go, oh, that would be wicked to have. And then you start to look at some reviews and read some reviews and then you watch a YouTube video and you're like, you convince yourself that you need this thing. And ultimately (laughs) you don't. It's a way of um, tackling an anxiety or a feeling of I'm doing something productive by looking at this stuff and buying this thing and it will make me better at what I do. And, you know, sometimes you could say, well, it will actually, some kit will help you with different opportunities and sometimes it is good to learn different things through buying kit. But most of the time it's not and it's actually a coping mechanism to deal with stress Mm -hmm. and anxiety, I think. Um, One thing I've always found is I try and if I see something I I kind of like rather than falling down the rabbit hole there and then, which can happen when you're a bit quiet with work as well, you kind of end up reading a bunch of reviews and opening a bunch of tabs on your browser, is actually to save it to a Pinterest board or save it somewhere to come back to later so that that initial impulse doesn't like drag you down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And maybe in three, four months' time, if you still think actually this would be really cool to have, I think this would be really helpful, then maybe you can kind of revisit it. But quite often I will go back to that board and look at the stuff that's on there and be like, you know what, I'm kind of glad I didn't get that actually because I wouldn't have used it and I don't need it. Um, So yeah, I think think you've you've got to almost got to put put things in place to stop. You've got to be aware that everyone has these kind of impulses and it's an impulsive behavior and so much stuff out there is designed to um, cash in on that, Mm -hmm. you know, to 
because they all have to go back to Instagram, all of these things are based on our behavioural responses to stuff. And ultimately, it's all about trying to sell us shit that we don't need. Um, I think also that the camera industry does need to sell stuff, right? You know, yeah, you've got course. these huge, great companies that really do need to sell things. And the trouble is also with photographers. We've talked about gas in in the past, right? Well, gas, I think, actually is a super dangerous... Gear acquisition syndrome. Sorry, yeah, so gear acquisition syndrome. I think, actually, it's really dangerous for us as photographers to minimise buying equipment. Like, it's just a completely normal thing. Well, actually, I think gas just is super dangerous because you're just like, oh, I've got gas. You've just spent eight grand that you did not need to spend, that you should have Mm. probably put into a pension, or you could have made put obtained it into your investments or something. Um, so, you know, you've, it's, it's, it's definitely for me minimized the impact of me buying large amounts of equipment in the past. Oh, it's just gas. You know, it's fine. Oh, I've got gear acquisition syndrome. Actually, no, you have a slight uh, obsession with chasing that small dopamine hit you get from buying something nice or buying something that you enjoy or buying something that you think is going to improve you or your career well, actually, no, the trouble there is it's easy. It's easy for us as photographers to say, oh, I'll buy that bit of kit because that'll make me better. Mm. Well, it won't, actually, unless you learn how to use it. It won't make you better at all. And the chances are that it'll be a very, very incremental improvement. You know, we were talking just before we came on, came on air. I've been offered a really good deal on a, on a, on a dream reflector, right? One of the big para... Uh, it's a sentence you don't hear that often. No, exactly. Well, exactly. Often quite. a great deal on a dream reflector. But I, well, I mean, well, welcome to my world, right? I mean, this is the sort of conversation I have all all, all the time. But I've been offered this great deal on it, and I and I've had now going. Well, actually, will it make me money? No. Will it improve me? No. Might give my work a slightly different look, but. Will it reduce hassle? No, if anything, it'll definitely add to it because I've got more kit now and I won't be able to then carry everything in one go and like, you know, it's just not it's just not worth doing it. But I realised, and this is the this has been the changing point for me, is that I've been looking for triggers. And I've been I've been now realizing what it is that triggers me to look at buying or look into various bits of kit. Like for example, I almost bought a self-calibrating monitor yesterday. Mm. to use as a reference check versus my Apple XDR display. And you kind of go, mm. no, it doesn't It doesn't matter. It really, it just don't, what are you doing? That's two and a half grand that you do not need to spend. You don't have a big enough office to justify it, and it's only going to create more hassle. It won't make you any money, and it won't make you happy. What well, triggered it? What triggered it? Yeah. A phone call from ISO. Right, okay. That's quite I had a, a phone call for, I, Yeah, I had a phone call from the guys at ISO, and they were like, hey, Tom, I want to speak to you because you spoke to a, a, um, someone called me to do some market research, and I basically went ballistic at them um, for, various, for various reasons. Not ballistic. Ballistic's a bit harsh. I, I kind of maybe gave them some ways that they could improve their products, and then it got passed up the chain, and then the guy up the chain called me. And he said, oh, yeah, we don't really rate those Apple XDR displays. And in my head, I'm going, well, I, I do. I really like working on it. It's really, I really like it. And he goes, well, it's not calibrated. And I'm like, well, it kind of is, but I hear, I hear you. And then that's put that kind of like seed of doubt. And so I was just yeah. like, well, maybe I should get a self-calibrating ISO just to check it. 
Well, actually, sod it. It doesn't matter. If you're just editing on the one screen and it looks consistent across all MacBook Pros and all iPhones, well, that's good enough mm. for me. I'm fine mm. with that. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, but also, I don't have the space in the office to have another great massive ISO. I really don't. I just don't know. It was going to be here on a rolling stand, so I would have to roll it out of the way all the time. And I was just like, well, hang on a minute. This is this is ridiculous. Stop, stop, yeah. stop, stop, stop. Um, so, yeah. And, it, and also, I noticed another set of triggers for me, mailing lists. Okay. I would get, I'd get like, hey, Tom, it's our summer sale. It's our Easter sale. It's our winter sale, autumn sale. It's our 3rd of May sale. It's our 17th yeah. of April sale. You know, <laughs> and, and they would they would be going through, I swear, my calendar and be like, oh, Tom's probably in the office today. We'll send him a, it's our 9 o'clock a.m. sale. Um, yeah. You know, so I was I've unsubscribed from all of those. And now the gear has to, you know, any purchases have to be run through the checks. And it's been great. My bank balance has gone up because I haven't been just buying gear willy-nilly. Um, mm. And it means also my stress level has dropped because I'm not having to work so hard to buy the kit, which I didn't really need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So yeah. it's great. It's great. So if, you, if, if, if this resonates with anyone, do, do honestly, those three checks and looking out for gear triggers and things that make you think that, mm. you know, you're going to buy something, just... And don't minimise gas. It is not usual so, for photographers to own so much equipment. Social media is a killer for that as well, like in, especially Instagram, oh, yeah. because you go on there and you see somebody with a shooting in a particular way. With a, you see a behind the scenes, or you see somebody with a particular camera bag, or you see something, and it's all about selling. I mean, that's why it's done so well as a, as an app. Mm -hmm. It's designed to sell stuff to people, and you know, so much of what resonates and what they promote is things that are based in that realm so yeah it's it's a bit of a minefield but i'm it glad is. to hear you've kind of got on top of the triggers thing i think that's definitely a, a valid point for everyone is just figuring well, out what those triggers are for each person one of our tri one of my triggers is actually talking about equipment on the podcast but i kind of oh, wanted to bring it oh, yeah so <laughs> so I guys the podcast is going to take a very different angle now. yeah <laughs> i think people are most vulnerable to that from what I've heard, people are most vulnerable to that kind of um, manipulation as well, late at night, mm -hmm. which is why you should always kind of like, I have a, a bedtime mode on my phone, which comes into play around 9, 9.45, I think, in the evening. And after that, I get no notifications mm -hmm. until the morning. And I, it then means I just kind of tend to put, try and put my phone down as much as possible in the evening because if you find yourself late at night kind of doom scrolling that's when you're most vulnerable most likely to convert into a sale from what I've seen mm -hmm. well also it so, also yeah. means that your brain is busy so I, I've started doing the three two one rule not for storage because obviously that's very good um, but the three two one for bedtime is actually very good so you don't eat food three hours before bed you don't drink fluids mm. two hours before bed and you don't go on your phone an hour before bed do you have trouble sleeping then? No, do you, you know what? I've always been. No, I've always been quite a good, good. But I've, I've kind of, I've basically just been on this journey in the past two, three months, of just trying to improve, in kind of a lot of different areas. And I, I've yeah. never been very good at being able to switch my brain off. I've always had quite mm. a busy brain, so I'd hit my head had hit the pillow, and I'd be like, right, that invoice 
that probably go, is going to become overdue tomorrow. I need to chase that. Where's it gone? And then I'd be like, oh God. And then I'd have to get up and go down to the office and then do more work to then calm. Yeah, yeah. And then th- when I was on my screens, when I was on Instagram and stuff, that is not helpful. Like that's yeah. that's stimulating your brain. And I'd see it behind the scenes of a photographer and I'd be like, oh, I definitely need a massive molar beauty dish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'd be like, all right, well, how much are they? Oh, I'd have to get it imported from the States. Well, that's probably okay. I've imported stuff before, you know, how much is it? And then I'd start looking up all sorts of weird costs. I've like, never no, no, heard of on. a molar beauty dish. Is that a beauty dish the shape of a, a molar? No, 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 that would, that would, I don't know what the light pattern coming out of that would be like. But no, the, the Mola, M-O-L-A, if anyone's interested. Oh, uh, don't, don't tell buy, them. No, you're going to don't, don't buy it. <laughs> again, I got offered a crazy crazy price on one of those once. But they are, they are, they are absolutely. Stop thinking about it, Tom. Stop thinking about it. Let's I'm not going to buy one. Else. No, 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 I'm not going to buy one. But I don't want to trigger anyone. But they're cool beauty dishes. And so we yeah. move on. If you have one, you'll be a better <laughs> photographer. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you know what though? Yeah. You'll look you'll look like a bigger photographer because these things are huge, and so you need a van to transport the big ones. And they come in there like uh, a like a yeah hard case, and yeah, it's a lot. I would not recommend. <laughs> so, but it, honestly, it's it's been. I hope I hope that's maybe resonated with a couple of people. Um, yeah. And if it hasn't, well, you now know what I've been dealing with <laughs> so but if it, it feels much better to have way less equipment my anxiety is through the floor i'm not buying anything anymore um and yeah it's just, till it's next just week. nice Every, till next week no honestly tune, i think tune, tune in next week listeners and tune, hear what tom's bought <laughs> <laughs> no honestly but it, but but greg here you go there, there, there's a trigger right and so for yeah. me i'm like nah that's cool like i'm not gonna buy anything don't need it. Well, I mean, when when we come off air, I'm going to quiz you about a certain thing that I've been looking to buy. So I'm just as guilty of it and just as, as vulnerable to it. Um, and but I think it's it's good. It's good that you've kind of identified that. But I think we should not keep our listeners too much longer because we're running into 25 minutes and we have a fantastic wow. guest this week. We do. So uh, we have um, this week we have Grant Scott on the podcast, um, and it's a really interesting episode because Grant's a fantastic thinker. Um, as ever, please do check out the show notes because everything that we talk about is going to be down below. If you're watching on YouTube, there's links below. Um, and if you're listening on the podcast, you can go to either the website um, or wherever you get your podcasts and you should be able to find the show notes. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't done so yet on YouTube because it does make a massive difference to us. It doesn't cost you anything. Um we post links here, there, and everywhere. Um, so please just follow a link and subscribe because it really does help out the show. But if you do want to pay something, yeah, we mm. are on uh, we're on Patreon. So patreon.com forward slash exposed negative, or you can PayPal us uh, single donations if you fancy just buying us a beer or yeah. a Mola beauty dish. <laughs> if you're feeling very if you're feeling very generous, but without much of, right. without much more ado, without without further ado. Without ado, Without much ado, with much ado about nothing, here's Grant Scott. <laughs> this week on the show, we are joined by Dr. Grant Scott. Uh, Grant is a former art director turned photographer who runs a very interesting resource uh, and podcast, if you haven't checked it out, the United Nations of Photography. Um, he talks and blogs and podcasts all about photography and the photo industry. And so we're very lucky this week to have him join us and to um, to talk about 
All sorts of things. We've got we've got a whole load of things to discuss with you. Loads of issues to bring up. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see to hear your take on a few things. And um, so I guess to start with, I, I, I kind of want to get the listener up to speed um, in terms of what your kind of background is in in photography. Now, obviously, as I as I hinted to in the intro, you you actually started off on the other side of the desk, so to speak, kind of working with magazines. Is that right? Yeah, so um, 40 years I've been working with professional photography now. Um, I started in 1985. Um, I'd studied graphic design at St. Martin's School of Art. Um, Back in a time when actually it wasn't that easy to study photography, Uh, all I wanted to do was design album covers. Um, But interestingly enough, in my year was Miles Aldridge, in the year below me was Platon and Jake Chesson. So although we were doing graphics, a lot of photographers came from that course. Mark Mattock was in my year, a whole load of people, as well as art directors. And um, yeah, so I started to work at Elle magazine back in 1985 in the UK when it first launched. Um, And because of that, I started to work with some of the greatest photographers of the last century, everybody from uh, I don't know, Toscani to... Uh, then went on to Art Direct Tatler magazine for 10 years. Um, so Toscani and uh, Klein and McCullen and Abbas and Leonard Freed and Jane Bound and Averdon and Helmut Newton and Herb Ritz and Bruce Weber. So I worked with all of these guys. I commissioned them. I stood next to them in the studio. And, and a combination of that and reading books, not books about how to take photographs, but books usually about photographers' lives. Um, that's mm. how I, if I know anything about photography, um, it was it came from that background. Mm. Okay. Just a couple of names there. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, this is the thing is that, you know, when you've been doing it for a long time, everybody starts somewhere. So yeah, people, I don't know, Corinne Day, well, I mean, yeah, I remember Corinne um, calling her up before she'd done any pictures, really, and Kay Moss came in holding her portfolio just because she wanted to come into L. Kate had never been into L. So, you know, when you've been doing it for a long time, you know people when they first started out. And also, there are a lot of photographers in the 90s, like Klein, uh, William Klein, and Jean Ipsier, who and Leonard Freed, actually, who weren't actually doing much work. McCullen was the same. They weren't getting commissioned. So hmm. it was very easy for me to reach out to these people and say, look, do you want to do some work? And they were really keen to do it. And Mm. I think it's really important to understand the history of the medium because Mm. it's very easily otherwise to kind of buy into that preconception of how it is now rather than how it was or, you know, everyone's got a journey. Yeah. I think that's why, you know, the United Nations of Photography, which is uh, the site that you run, I don't know how long you've been running that, but some of the articles on there are really fascinating for that kind of um, insight into the industry of what's gone before and being able to use that to understand what's going to come in the future, in a sense, like seeing those patterns. And it's a bit like studying history. You know, you, you the, people always say, oh, why do you study history? It's, it's kind of redundant. And it's like, well, no, it's about seeing and spotting patterns and trying to understand what's going to come in the future. It's about understanding human behavior. It's the same thing about understanding the theory of photography and photographers' lives, like you're saying. So but with that in mind, you obviously, you know, you switched from being an art director to a photographer yourself. When you transitioned into photography, you know, 
were there any kind of there must have been some quite big lessons that you learned but were there any assumptions that you had that proved to be false or things that surprised you about becoming a photographer yeah what well, even how it happened was really odd because the photographer john spinell gave me some hasselblad and sort of, and said look i'm fed up with you telling me what to do why don't you go and do it yourself <laughs> and then, um terry o'neill taught me how to load a hasselblad um so i had this very kind of weird start to it and then I thought, well, how do you become a photographer? Um, so I went to Italy and I got a Vespa in Bologna and I drove it to Naples. And then all of the way there, I read Edward Weston's day books because I thought, well, that was a good way to learn how to be a photographer. And whenever I saw anybody interesting or anything that was happening, I would jump off with the Hasselblad with some rolls of film and, and I made work. Um, on that journey. Then I came back to London, realized that I couldn't be a photographer for magazines and things because I was too well known as an art director. So I started mm. to go to the advertising agencies with this, this, <laughs> this box that I could hardly lift of 2016 black and white prints. And of course, in advertising, they looked at the pictures and went, well, you're the Italian guy. So I started to get commissioned to do coffee commercials and um, you know, or anything to do with Italy, that was mm. that's what I got. And then Mark Porter, who was the great um, uh, art director of The Guardian uh, at the time, we were judging something together. And he said, well, look, it's about time you came and did some portraits for The Guardian. And that was when I started to, to photograph kind of celebrities or what I call people you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. um, and what I thought at the big, you know, in answer to your question was that I thought that art directors would be a bit like I was as an art director. So I'd give you complete freedom. Um, I'd like you to challenge me. You know, uh, I'd fight for the photographers who I commissioned. Um, and then I found that there were all these art directors who didn't want to do that. Um, mm. And then what slowly started to happen was I realized that the clients I should work for were the ones who liked the idea that I had been an art director and that they didn't have to go on the shoot, which mm. meant I could kind of oversee everything. Um, and that's kind of how it, it progressed. But, um, but I have no interest in, in, in kind of technique or um, learning any of that stuff. Everything I do is very, um, very simple, really. Mm. Do you think that the kind of... Uh, you know, I, previously, I've loved reading into the kind of history of photography. And one of the books I always kind of recommend to people who are interested in getting into photography from a kind of documentary background would be, say, one of the kind of entertaining histories of Magnum by somebody like Russell Miller. You know, he did one for the 50th anniversary, um, you know, 20, 25 years ago, how many, however long ago that was now. But um, the the idea of reading these stories and the romantic notions that you get from that, that that can be quite wistful but I also think it's it can be quite a good motivator in the sense of understanding that there are multiple ways of becoming a photographer and being a photographer and behaving as a photographer sometimes you know if you if you if you're not aware of that you don't understand what's possible and actually reading you know an autobiography a biography of a photographer is a nice way to say oh, okay that's another way of thinking about that, that I've never I never would have perceived myself do you yeah. find that that's yeah sorry to, to interrupt yeah absolutely i mean i'm obsessed with history 
you know, that's what I'm obsessed with. I mean, in, I'm interested in meeting people. I'm interested in conversation and, and I'm interested in listening and learning. And the mm. camera just happens to be something that I use to document those meetings. Mm. Um, and I think that um, too often photographers feel as if they need to label themselves and give themselves, um, I am a portrait photographer, I am a documentary photographer, I am a street photographer. I don't mm. understand what any of those labels mean, to be mm. honest. To me, they're completely fake. You know, we're just photographers. We make images and we tell stories. Um, but a, you know, a, and history is about stories. A lot of the time, I guess, there's a pressure on photographers when you have kind of portfolio meetings or whatever, and, and, and people really want to pigeonhole you as a photographer. Mm. And you quite often get asked, "But what is it you, sh you know? What is it you shoot? Like, you've got to define your role. You know, especially if you work in the advertising world, you're constantly being told, "Don't." do everything you need to be kind of create a niche and, yeah. and focus on that because people want to know okay you're the car guy or girl you know you're the person who does this um sorry tom are you gonna jump in no i was just gonna say i just i i hear this all the time from from mentors and and people in in the industry and stuff that you've got to find your niche you've got to find this but i think and you know We'll go on to your your plan for photographers uh, article in in a little bit, but I just don't feel like having a niche is is a is a is a responsible way of running a business now. Well, I don't. I don't. Yeah, but no, I I think that there are some. Re I don't want to so early in our conversation get so heavy that it's kind of. But I think the semantics of, of photography are very very important because that's where it becomes so tribal. Um, for me, if I give that example of Italy, I didn't come back to London saying I have a niche. All I had was subject. And actually, how I how I teach photography, how I understand photography, and how I kind of t talk and write about photography, is that subject is everything. But that subject has to come from who you are. What are your passions and what are your interests? You know, there is no point being a food photographer or wanting to be a food photographer unless you are absolutely passionate about food. You know, food comes first. It's the same if you want mm -hmm. to be a football photographer. It doesn't matter what you want to photograph. The passions and the interests give you your subject matter. And mm -hmm. then, as somebody who used to commission um, and who now teaches and works, I know that I get commissioned to do work, not because I'm a documentary portrait or whatever photographer, because people know that I have a real deep interest in design, in art, in popular culture. And therefore, when I'm commissioned to photograph these people, I can have a conversation with them, which makes them feel comfortable. But that's mm. got nothing to do with niches, Photoshop plugins, cameras, <laughs> lighting setups. It's purely to do with what I'm passionate about. And then I can convey that passion. So mm. I absolutely agree. We are in an era of the specialist, and it is really important to be a specialist and not a generalist. But that specialism comes from who we are, our personal, rather than trying to fit into what an ad agency wants. Do you see what I'm saying with that? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's so. really interesting. I think, I think 
when you say niche to most photographers, you talk to me about a niche, I'd be like, right, okay, so it's got to be a technical niche and yeah. I've got to be that guy for that look. Whereas actually what you're saying is that the niche is about your passions and, you know, the the less about, well, not including the technical aspects at all. It's more about who you want to speak to and how you can kind of get along with those people. That's all it is. You know, the, 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 it, it's like being a writer you know, you, you would use a laptop to tell stories. We use a camera to tell stories and to document what's interesting to us. There's a, a really great photographer, very good friend of mine for years and years, David Eustace. And Eustace always said, you know, um, I get paid to photograph the way I see the world. It's just lucky that people like the way I see the world. And I think mm. that that's always stayed. And I commissioned Eustace all through the 90s. So... He, you know, he was part of my learning along with other photographers. And I've always thought that that's a very key point. And I think that this is where photographers have to try and step out of these kind of preconceived templates, because mm -hmm. that, that's where unhappiness lies, because you're trying to be something that's probably not very true to who you are. Um, mm. Actually, if you were true to who you are, that works. And that's how I've always taught photography. Um, and even the course I lead at the moment, the undergraduate course at Oxford Brooks, um, from the first day the students arrive, they're allowed to photograph whatever they want and they can photograph it for three years. Now, if that's skateboarding, then it's skateboarding. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. Mm -hmm. What's important is they're a specialist on skateboarding and their photography is always going to be better than mine because I don't understand skateboarding in the way in which they do. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I mean, some of the things I've seen you discuss before on the show, seen or seen, seen on the on the website, but also heard you discuss on the show, you know, to do with like um, the future of magazine publishing and it's something that we've discussed as well on the show. And, and I think we're at a stage now with a lot of photographers, especially with the developments in AI that have been kind of going leaps and bounds this year, I mean, mm -hmm. I say this year, I mean, this month, it seems like the, the pace of change is so quick. Mm -hmm. How concerned are you that moving forward, the medium is at risk of becoming kind of irrelevant or ignored? Um, uh, there was an interesting point that you wrote, which I really resonated, which was you don't want to go down with the wreckage, but you also don't want to jump onto the wrong lifeboat. And I thought that was a great <laughs> quote because that's something I can totally relate to at the moment is I you know. know that there's a big change coming. But I think a lot of photographers are looking around going, oh, crap, which lifeboat do I need to get on? How do I adapt and remain relevant and remain employable um, and and not get left behind? But at the same time, hedging your bets that you're not going off on a random tangent that isn't actually the future. Of, you know, I think you, need to, I think you need to stay true to yourself. You know, don't, mm -hmm. don't be too easily um swayed by others you know um i think what's interesting is a lot of the ai stuff i'm seeing at the moment and i did a i had a whole conversation with uh jonas benickson uh on our mm. christmas episode of, of the a photographic life podcast where he spoke about all of his work with ai and um, we yeah. had a deep dive because i wanted to try and understand it a lot of the work i'm seeing at the moment is documentary photography oh look i can recreate bruce davidson i can recreate um, Gary Winogrand, I can recreate. Mm. And it's like, okay, fine. Early days of digital art. You know, it's like the Athena poster for those of a certain age. 
you know, hmm. um, it's as bad as a Genesis album cover. You know, it's this kind of complete thing. Um, but the the reality of where photography always is is that it's never been more relevant today than it has been in the past because every decision we make in our lives is informed by photography what we wear what we eat where we live what we drive how we vote you know photography has become this incredibly powerful global language now will some people um and uh, I've spoken to a number of people about this with the metaverse and this recreation and the com the combining of gaming into photography. Is that going to happen? Yeah, it is. But is it going to become the dominant? Well, no, because there's always going to be a need for photography as people perceive it as a documentation of something that always actually exists. Mm -hmm. Would it be as big as it, it as it's grown? Uh, probably not. But is it too mm. big now? Absolutely. There are too many people who think they can earn a living from photography. <laughs> you know, mm. any people saying, I'm a photographer. And if a lot of those people drop out, that's absolutely fine because that's the natural pace of things. But they may move into digital art. They may move into AI. They may move into different areas. And, and I, I embrace all of that. I don't have a problem with any of it. Mm. I do... I do think that's kind of one interesting aspect of AI is I do wonder how much it will take the excitement out of photography for a lot of people in the sense of, you know, when you look at like a street, you know, I know we talked earlier on the top of the show about kind of the labels, but if you look at somebody who spends a lot of their time doing street photography, there's a real kind of drive for them to capture something in the same way that somebody who's interested in fishing is prepared to stand on a bank for hours on end for the for the joy of catching that fish. You know, they go out and they, they walk the streets for hours and hours in order to capture one single moment that really speaks to them. And I do think that actually the ability to sit behind your keyboard and type in, I mean, I saw um, a picture that someone produced the other day it was Boris Johnson in a kind of, uh, film noir kind of walking down and it reminded me of the 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 famous James Dean New York street portraits you know that um oh, wow. oh god name for, escapes me now Dennis yes. Stark. who Dennis Stark yeah and you shot those and i kind of wonder if for for a lot of people who are not fully passionate about it but kind of semi-interested the fact that they can just sit behind their computer and put that in and come up with a very creative very interesting looking picture will actually stop them from then going out and shooting which then means that maybe less people will be drawn to shooting and taking pictures themselves therefore naturally the amount of people who are interested in photography per se in the purest form of it will perhaps decrease because there will be these other easier creative outlets you yeah. know it's like well, that's not a bad thing though is it no 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 i'm saying yeah. maybe that will allow the industry which is bloated as you're saying uh, to actually come back to a more manageable level because it will sort the people who are really truly passionate about it from the people who just have a creative itch and for them photography was an incredibly democratic easy thing to get into which it wasn't 50 years ago you know you would have become a draftsman or you would have been an illustrator because actually the materials are cheaper and easier whereas now picking up a digital camera picking up your phone oh. is incredibly accessible to a lot of people and it yeah. allows them to express themselves creatively and that's what humans generally are trying a lot of humans are trying to find that kind of creative outlet and they will go to the easiest um method of, of, of producing that 
And if that becomes AI, then that means there'll be less people potentially pursuing photography as a career. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm cool with all of that. But I have to say, I looked at the AI platforms the other day that everyone's using, and I didn't get past the homepage. You know, I, and why was that? It just all looks too confusing to me. Life's too short. Yeah, I, mean, I do think you maybe have to have a certain level of, and there is a certain level of skill. I know mean, there'll be some people listening who are like, no, but there is a certain level of skill when it comes to using these prompts. Uh, you know, the order of which things are affected and the, the kind of the, the little kind of ones you put on the end and, and stuff like that. So it is, it's it's relatively easy if you're learning a language. Kind of tech, yeah, 100%. But if you're, if you're tech orientated, well, but if you're not tech orientated, yes, I can totally understand why suddenly kind of having to put in a prompt on a Discord channel suddenly becomes really complex. Well, that's, and what's Discord, etc., etc. Et yeah, I mean, that's a quite an interesting aspect of it because ultimately photography is a form of language, right? It's a visual language that people use to communicate an idea. And so AI and writing prompts is another form of language, really, isn't it? It's about kind of understanding how to put in the prompts to get the type of image you're after. That's just another form of communication, but it's actually incredibly separate to photography. It just happens that the medium or the end result is visual. Yeah, but... So in every other aspect, it's... Yeah, but it takes a huge, you know, you can only recreate an image like Gary Winogrand if you know about Gary Winogrand. You can only recreate a Bruce Davidson if you know about Bruce Davidson. And then you've got to go back to that original work. You've got to look at it. You've got to um, dissect it. You've got to analyze it if you want to recreate it. But I think the interesting thing at the moment is that everybody's getting super overexcited about this idea. But I don't know if you're aware of the work of Frank Ockenfels III. And Frank is a, a yeah. great... Great photographer. Someone we're trying to get, we'd love to get on the show, actually, because I'm a big fan of his. Well, Frank, mm. well, I used to commission Frank all through the 90s. Um, uh, we did a lot of work together. And then, of course, he now does the LA stuff and he does all every yeah. Hollywood poster you see is Frank. But what's <laughs> yeah. great about Frank is on his website, he says, OK, this is the picture I took against green screen. And here is the poster. And he shows yes. you. Um, and there is no correlation between what Frank photographed and what that poster became. You know, it became mm. a, a, an illustration, a painting, a piece of poster art. So mm -hmm. this idea, and for me, that's what a lot of the AI is. It's surface, yes. you know, and, and which is okay. It's, it's fine. But mm -hmm. people, it's a bit like eating too much candy floss. It can make you unwell, you know? Yeah. And if it's that... The thing with Frank... Sorry, go on. The, the other, the interesting, other interesting aspect, I guess, of Frank's work is that ultimately he uses those that access that he gets to be shooting on these weird and wonderful, you know, kind of Frankenstein film cameras that he creates, and then he produces his scrapbook books yeah. and his scrapbook work, which is more in the art world, really. Yeah, and but those scrapbooks he was doing back in in the late eighties yeah. and nineties when he was working for Rolling Stone. And he was just mm. doing very simple kind of work. So it ties back with what we were talking about at the beginning there, that there is that journey. You know, there is that, I remember Frank way back, you know. Mm. Okay, you, could, you know, you can see that progression to where he is now. So that mm -hmm. informs his work. Um, so I, I, as I said, I'm, I just don't freak out about anything, really. Um, it always, I always use the metaphor of jazz, you know, which I don't know very much about. But what I do know <laughs> is that Dixieland jazz was supposed to be jazz. And then they didn't like it. It wasn't jazz if it didn't have a banjo. 
And then suddenly it was modern jazz. And it's like, oh, it can't be this. And then it became freeform jazz. And then every kind of element of jazz, every time it evolved or mutated, people would say, but that's not jazz, you know? And mm. I think photography is So very... it become like acid jazz or something. Yeah, exactly. And I think photography is very similar to that. You know, people are mm. constantly clinging on to, to their jazz. And it's like, what? I find that slightly worrying. Because yeah. ultimately, if you speak to someone who's really into jazz, they, um, you know, it's like a whole nother world that you become unaware of. And it almost feels quite um, like there's a, you know, there's a walled garden, so to speak. And the idea that photography and photography already suffers from that to some extent. You know, if you, if you talk to film purists or analog purists or whatever, you know, that sense of, well, that's not proper photography. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of snobbishness in in the, in the medium already um but yeah i can totally see the connections there i mean that's a very good analogy i'd not thought about it like that before <laughs> well i think you know it's interesting because again if i go back to the course that um that i t that i wrote that you know I, I lead and i wrote um we don't teach any darkroom photography mm. my question is well why would i i don't need to teach darkroom practice or analog photography to teach somebody how to see mm -hmm. or to how to work with light. I don't need to. There are other ways now. It would be a bit like going on to study music with, and I've got my electric guitar, and the guy there says, yeah, but first of all, you've got to learn the mandolin. I'd be like, well, why? You know, I want to plug in. It's like, well, no. Um, so I think that, you know, photography would benefit from just, just just relaxing a bit and mm -hmm. you know and just letting things develop and stay true to yourself and watch what what's going on but just pick up on the things that you that feel right to you don't feel you've got to do things i think now would be a great time to reference uh, there's a there's a uh, article on your website that says has anyone seen the new plan for photographers right Thanks. so we talk about nerves and we talk about people calming down and photography in general is calming down on the flip side playing devil's advocate yeah. you say uh, traditionally there was obviously a you know a, a fairly succinct career path yeah. that, that, that not everyone but most people would follow you right. would assist you would then slog you know you would then get commissioned and you would then go off and do it for as long as possible now there isn't a plan well, everyone seems to be doing kind of all sorts and kind of whatever and that plan doesn't really seem to kind of hold true to this day so if people are trying to calm down it, there's there's i don't feel like there's ever been so much uh anxiety never been so much uncertainty there's never been so much of a uh kind of where's photography gonna go you know we always had a bit more of a even though we were self-employed so that obviously inherently has a level of risk it feels like today Right now, we've never had so much. Um, we've never had so much uncertainty. Mm. I, I, you're absolutely right, and, and, and I do. I probably one of the things I write, write most about, and I talk most about, is this kind of fluid situation. I mean, I always end my podcast at the end by just saying, "Take care," you know, because mm -hmm. I think it started off with a kind of an arm round the shoulder because I thought, well, I think people need this an arm round. Yeah. The you know, um, I think exact the, same reason we started this. Yeah. Well, there you go. You see, I mean, we're, we're all on the same page, aren't we? We're all sort of thinking, well, actually, if we talk about things, 
then the, and we talk about things in a responsible manner in from an informed perspective then mm-hmm. what we can do is perhaps bring some enlightenment or some discussion you know i never i'm never trying to give answers because i don't have any but i can put some questions and maybe those questions will help people but i think the the it goes back you know all of these things go back to what we were talking about at the beginning there with these labels because if we're trying to fulfill labels then we're always going to fail i always sort of say people say to me oh you know as a photographer you need a style well style is transitory and it goes out of fashion so the mm-hmm. last thing you want is a style and you definitely don't want a style related to post production because that'll mm. go out of fashion as quick as anything and suddenly you've got an entire body of work that's no longer aesthetically sure. relevant you know mm-hmm. so i think that where i'm talking about calming down is is not putting the pressure on yourself to have to be this thing that maybe you think a photographer is whatever that may be and it's perfectly okay nowadays to have more than one job to work in different fields to work mm-hmm. multiple platforms to embrace different areas of work uh, whereas in the past you were a photographer you know and if you were working in contemporary art practice you might be a teacher and a photographer and you'd use the the college dark rooms to do your film and processing and you'd use that to fund your personal work but it's all moved mm. on you know and mm. so we're, we're not um we're not in the 1980s and we're not in the 1990s you know we're in a position where we have i mean i grew up in uh, the world of punk in london on the king's road pretty much through mm-hmm. the 70s and early 80s and then we had all these things we wanted to do but we didn't have the tools now we have the tools but it does seem to pe- me that people have kind of slightly lost the idea of just go and do it. And it doesn't matter if you fail. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you make a mistake. You know, we do, po- I, you know, you guys are very organized with your podcast. I'm not, you know, but it doesn't stop me from doing it and making mistakes. I will also say we're only 40 something episodes in and you are 295. No, um, two fifty something, I think. But yeah, not far off that. Is oh, it? just yeah, two hundred and fifty. I mean, that's still <laughs> from yeah. one podcaster to another. That's an amazing milestone. You should be super proud because if people don't realise the level of work and effort you have put in to secure two hundred and fifty guests and then do the interviews is unbelievable. Yeah, well, I don't do the interviews. Mm. Um, I, I'm lazy in that way. I came up with a concept at the beginning that people send me their contribution and then i don't listen to it until i actually drop it into the podcast live so i never li- people oh, always right they always say oh, genius you know did-. so they send me their contribution i mean there are a couple of and um, there's matt black uh, which was an interview there are there's the occasional interview but never more than two or three a year mm-hmm. uh, and then i do the bill shapiro talk which is a relatively new thing yeah, that's mm. the one I was listening to this morning. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah, uh, um, so we we talk, but um, but anyway, yeah, you know, there's the first episode of my podcast. Uh, I made a film a few years ago, a feature length documentary around Bill Jay, who's one of the most important people in photography. I was going to ask about this. Is 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 uh, we'd love to? Um, is there a way that people can see this somewhere? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Free free to excellent. Okay, oh. we'll link to that then. 
Yeah. Because I would love to, I, I haven't researched that enough. I wanted to watch it. I've, I've obviously, one of the, my books that I always tell people to, to read when they get in touch about, how do you get started in photography? I was like, go read David Hurd and Bill Jay, you know, yeah. on being a photographer. Yeah. And they go buy a new pair of shoes. Which way? <laughs> in that book, there's an amazing story behind it because what you think is true isn't true. Um, and that was the whole thing of making the film. But we made a document, I made a documentary feature length film around the life of Bill Jay. And um, I'd never made a film before. I didn't know who he was. I didn't have a clue. Um, we didn't have any money. Um, we made the whole film for about 500 quid. And, but I phoned up a friend of mine and just said, look, there's this guy called Bill Jay. Um, people keep saying that I'm Bill Jay. I think I better look into who this guy is. And there, there went four years of research into Bill Jay as we made the film. But Tim, who I made the film with, um, who'd also never made a feature-length film before, he, but he had the cameras because he, was a, he makes short films. Um, the first episode on my podcast, he, he rang me up and he said, um, you do realise you're talking into the wrong side of the microphone, don't you? <laughs> And I was like, yeah. To be I fair, said, that sounds like something Tom would say to me. <laughs> I wonder why the birds so loud. So if you go back to episode one, you hear a man in a shed talking into the wrong side of a microphone. <laughs> Screaming into a mic. <laughs> well, that's know. very punk, though. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's it. Anyway, sort of slightly getting off track, but yeah, there you go. No, that's great. I'm, I'm definitely going to um, link to that and check that out because, uh, I mean, having done the documentary, I don't want to you know, give us any spoilers on what you discovered in the documentary, but give us a takeaway from that. You know, what did you discover about Bill Jade in terms of the lessons that he he that are relevant to photography practice? Oh, everything, everything. <laughs> but also, I, what I learned more about anything is the importance of people in other people's lives. You know. If anybody listens to this and thinks, oh, yeah, that was really, that was interesting. That's great. And Bill did it mm. through his whole life. You know, um, the reason we gave the film away on YouTube at the end is because that was in his spirit. So we had screenings mm. all around the world. It was originally um, screened at the Martin Parr Foundation down in Bristol because Martin's mm -hmm. in it. Brian Griffin, uh, Daniel Meadows, Homer Sykes, uh, Alex Webb. Um, you know, I can't remember who else now, but there's a whole load of people in the film. And, um, yeah. and yeah, I think watch the film. That's all I would say. <laughs> it's a roller coaster of a ride. And even if you've got no interest in photography, um, I guarantee at the end, everybody cries because of yeah, what really? happened at the end of the film. So it's, it's an emotion. Oh, wow. It's on, but it's on oh, YouTube. Okay. Get, get that out. We'll link, we'll link I mean, obviously we Having done years of this, you know, what photography means to you, uh, what are some of the best responses you've heard or, or, or is there a pattern that emerges from the, all the answers you've received over the episodes? Because for those who don't know, one of the, the, the premise of the United Nations of Photography is you ask photographers, working photographers and, and we, I guess, you know, people in the photog photographic practice what photography means to them and, then, and it's quite an open-ended question you must have some pretty interesting responses over the years yeah i mean i should say that the podcast is called a photographic life so that's if you want to find the podcast it's called a photographic life it's by the un of photo um but um yeah uh, do you know what's so incredible is how in 200 odd and i, I can't remember how many but 200 odd episodes um no, I don't think anybody's ever mentioned a camera. Um, 
and it we've had people talking recently uh landry major an american photographer talked about um the secret life she discovered about her father um through photography and um oh my gosh uh Daniel Meadows did a fantastic The Ten Rules of Being a Photographer, of which one of them was whatever you do, do not refer to yourself as an artist. And that caused a lot of a lot of trouble, and I, I quite like <laughs> that. Um, but invariably, people talk about the themes of memory, of life. People have spoken about issues with terminal illnesses. It sounds really dull or down, but it's downbeat, but it isn't. It's really heartfelt. And, and mm. I'm hugely... Um, thankful to the contributors who because they have to answer the question in less than five minutes mm -hmm. the rule mm -hmm. although some go a little bit over and some are, are, are way under um mm -hmm. but it really is themes of life themes of memory of narrative of connection and also what is amazing is how many of them um say um my father did give me a camera at this age or this person, there's a, I can't remember his name now, but there's a great photographer in Australia. And he said, I went into a bookshop as a, as a child and some, somebody gave me Don McCullen's, uh, I can't remember which book it was, but one of his, his war books. And, um, and that changed my life. So there are the, you know, and that's what connects with the Bill J film because the Bill J film at the beginning, something happens. When I was talking to people about Bill, they would always say, why was he like he was? And then I found a piece of film footage in uh, an archive in San Diego that had never been seen. And, um, and he tells you why on that. Wow. He explains it. And something happened to him as a child, which shaped his whole life going forward. And so often that is the case in the contributions. And I think that's the case in all of our lives. Mm. Uh, there was a skateboarder you had on recently his name escapes me, who talked about how photography was his way of fitting in, you know, yeah. like it allowed him to be in social situations without necessarily having to contribute. You know, he had an excuse to be there and to witness for somebody who was quite introverted. And that that personally spoke quite a lot to me and how my, in, in, you know, um, early days in photography was that the camera allowed it, me to be somewhere that I shouldn't necessarily be. Not and allowed me access to hang out with people in a certain way. And, and mm. it gave me an excuse not to have to then be the centre of attention, you know, something to hide behind. And yeah. that has led to the practice that I now have, which is very observed, documentary kind of driven photography in that, at least stylistically. I mean, I had, I had the exact same thing when I was, when I was 14, 15, and I was going to these gigs at my, in my local youth centre and they were put on by these kids who were in year 11 at my school and I was turning up, I was desperately trying to be one of the cool kids and they were all playing in the bands and I was just like, I am not musically talented at all. I've got a bass on the wall here and I can play, play like a couple of tunes, but the camera was the passport that let me in. And I, I would just be like running around at the front of these shows and, and I remember just being allowed and just being kind of welcomed in. They were like, cool, that's, that's a creative outlet as well. Just, you know, you, you come and hang out with us. And then I'd go backstage and, you know, and you'd kind of, it, would, it was great. You know, so yeah, it really does allow you. I think that is the common factor to all photographers. You know, I, I, there are very few photographers I've met over the years who are ego maniacs 
Um, there are some, but I'm not going to tell you who they are. But I sorry, will... we won't, we won't, we won't mention any names. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> their work is terrible, and they may have achieved some kind of financial success or commercial popularity um, mm -hmm. on the basis of their marketing and their hooks, but but the work isn't there. We, right. you know, anybody who really knows it would know. Um, but the majority of photographers, I think, do have those insecurities, do have that uh, that sense of wanting to be the observer. Um, and I think that's something, again, that photographers should be happy with and okay with. And mm -hmm. I do feel that certain places, certain people put forward this idea. Maybe it's still, you know, it goes back to David Hemmings in Blow Up this idea of what the photographer is, you know, or, mm. you know, or, or Don, uh, Don McCullough, who's a very kind of gentle kind of a guy, really. But you have this image of this kind of, you know, I'm the photographer, I'm going to, you know, do the thing. and it's like, well, yeah, you know, I, I think I quite often when I'm working on a shoot, um, I'm not a particularly, um, you may notice, I, I never put my, I never say my name on the podcast. Um, I never introduced myself, and I don't exist on social media um, as me. You know, mm -hmm. I'm quite a secretive in the sh Doing this is only the second time I've ever done something like this on somebody else's podcast. Well, thank you very much. Uh, the, well, that's right. The other one, um, well, anyway, but... Oh, it was that bad, it was, that bad was it? No, no, no. Actually, it was really good. And I was just going to say, the guy who did the interviewing, it ended up like kind of on the psychiatrist's couch because... Oh, right. Because I don't talk very often about these things like this. And mm -hmm. uh, so it's the same with you guys. You know, I'm, I'm saying things now that I don't often say. Mm. Um, but I think that, you know, there is this propagation of this idea. And if you're, if as a photographer, you're trying to live up to this ideal invariably you're going to fail and you're going to have mental health problems that you yeah. know that, that but if you can just go actually it's like dyslexia there's so many photographers who are dyslexic um and when i meet young students who, who want to come on on my course i always say they say oh you know i'm dyslexic and i'm like wow you've got a photography superpower and they've never heard it described as a superpower before sure it's you know, always an ailment or a problem or a, yeah, exactly sure. and they're like oh really and they say yeah 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 you yeah. know bailey's dyslexic da da da's dyslexic these photographers are dyslexic um and so that's your superpower that's your creative mm -hmm. power and i think you know that sense of wanting to be the observer perhaps empathy perhaps sensitivity they're superpowers for the photographer and should be embraced and not mm. kind of seen as weaknesses Mm. Yeah, I think so. Can I go back to the the photographers being kind of like the famous, like all powerful, wow. uh, kind of the, the the people in the room? Well, wow. I in my in my previous life, in a in a different season of my life, I was a music photographer, toured the world with bands, wow. and so I've seen firsthand what fame can do to people. Oh yeah, and I and I you know like Icarus, I flew almost too close to the sun, wow. but you know I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Fame is, you know, you speak to anyone famous and guaranteed probably the one thing they'll say that they would love is anonymity, right? right? And actually, I there's a, there's a, you know, a nice part of, you know, like you say, kind of being 
private and being that kind of not enigma but like you know just being a private person is is a lovely is a lovely thing you know we don't discuss that much personal stuff on on this show you know why would we you know, right. I, I don't, I don't put any personal stuff on my on my Instagram and it's all the social media and stuff like that. So, but I have seen, I have seen some photographers from that past life go off, do the whole rock and roll thing, get famous, and then you know crash out. And, yeah. I, and I really wouldn't wish it on anyone. No, I mean the same thing. I've I've spent the last kind of thirty odd years really kind of around that world and celebrities and what have you. But mm-hmm. strangely, I grew up with Oliver Reed um, in that my father met Ollie in 1957 and Ollie was my father's, my dad's a bricklayer and Ollie was his labourer um, right. in Wimbledon. Um, they stayed friends all the way through until mm-hmm. the very end. And, um, and so I grew up in that world and that environment with Ollie in our house for parties as a kid and, and everybody else, all those other sixties, um, film celebrities, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I saw that, you know, and I thought that was all quite normal. So by the time I got to doing it as a job, I wasn't phased by it, but I always recognized Mm -hmm. that I was, I was observing. I was, yeah, I didn't want that life. Although also, you know, I came a little close at times. Yeah, they, I wouldn't wish mm. it on most people. No. It's, uh, it's yeah. Be careful yeah. what you wish for, I think, would go down quite well with a lot of people. Yeah. It, I mean, it's especially prevalent with social media. You know, everyone's forever posting up pictures of their best life and, and an unattainable life that doesn't actually really exist. Um, so unless you are that ultra-high-level celebrity. But, you know, I, I yesterday did a very big move for me. I deleted Instagram. Wow. Okay. Not not the page itself. Yeah. I will still post to it. I understand the value that it brings to my business and the creative outlet and all that. But I've deleted the app from my phone. And so stories now go online through the web. And I don't have to sit and doom scroll and see what other photographers are up to or or anything like that. And it, I've woken up today with a with a far clearer head with almost <laughs> no worries in the world. I mean, I have a bit of a cough, as you can see. But like, you know, other but- than that, I've, I feel great for doing it. So uh, yeah. I feel that the pressure of social media and stuff is is we've never had so much pressure on us from a from a work point of view, but then also from a social point of view that we we have to be these people. Well, actually, you know, I'm going to be like you say earlier, true to yourself. I don't want to be famous. I don't want you know. I don't want to be posting everything online. I'll put up what I'm happy with, right, and then I'll move on. To- yeah. An interesting point there, actually, because obviously, Grant, you recently had this with Twitter, didn't you? You you, um, <laughs> you had a bit of a drama there, right? Yeah. Well, I had 27,000 followers one minute, and then I had none the next because um, the account was hacked. Did you tweet spent... Elon? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened, you know, but what I did, I, you know, I'd been running it since 2010, I think, 20. Mm-hmm something like that a long time you know and it was really useful for me um but it got hacked i couldn't get back into it um for some reason um twitter no longer has any support services so everything everyone they said to email there was no one there so Mm -hmm. i just okay i had photo life pod instead of at you in a photo i had that sitting there anyway um because i tend to um I, i i I have lots of URLs and bits and pieces in case I need them. 
Sure. And um, so I just moved over to Photo Life Pod. I lost the 27,000 followers and I now have 500 odd. Um, and it was really, it was a bit of a relief, to be honest, because mm-hmm. with 27,000, I felt as if I had to kind of meet their requirements. You know, mm-hmm. I write a couple of articles a week. I do a podcast a week. I work as a commissioned photographer. I, um, I, I'm you know, head of a photography course, Oxford Brooks. So, you know, I had all these things and then suddenly it was a release. And, and so now it didn't affect anything. You know, all, all of the, the traffic to everything I do is just the same as it is and continues to grow without it. But, yeah. it, you know, so I do think these things are very useful. Um, but you've got to, again, it goes back to this same thing. Only do what you feel comfortable with. You mm-hmm. know, don't feel that you have to do these things in a certain way. Just engage with them in the way. I think you have to engage with them. I think it's really important to engage with mm-hmm. them. But do it in your own way. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a, there's a lot of anxiety with photographers with every time there's a new platform, you know. The number of people that have told me, oh, you need to be on TikTok. And it's something oh, I've yeah. you know, refused to get involved in because it's like the last thing I need is another social media another yeah. another app yeah well i'm oh. on Mastodon. i'm on vero i'm on post i'm on substack uh and i'm on tiktok but i've never posted anything my daughter keeps mm. getting me to do dance routines um uh for tiktok <laughs> i keep refusing to do but um but yeah you know i'm on them i'm on them you know it, it doesn't take any time I, but it's as much as anything. I, I, I go on them to protect. I, I get the tag to make sure that no one else can take the tag. And yeah, I've done that with TikTok. But I guess it's interesting to see, you know, that there's always going to be these changes with technology and, and they will obviously have these impacts on photography. Um, and that's something I wanted to, to talk about. But I, I realized an area that I hadn't discussed with you that I'd be meaning to bring up was obviously, you know, your position as... Um, photographic educator with the um you know the course that you you head up uh what do you think in terms of the photographic education for the next generation of visual people you know you you've got this new online ma that i understand that you're you're launching yeah what's different about that than than the kind of current things that are out there what 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 are your lessons that you've put into that to create something that will actually be meaningful and useful for for students in the visual world? Well, I think it starts for me with the undergraduate course. So so prior to this course that I run, uh, Oxford Brookes University, which is in Oxford in the UK, um, had never had a photography course. So this was a brand new photography course and photography for the university. It's been running now for four years. Um, So the premise was, if I'm going to do this thing, it needs to have a USP. It has to be different. The premise of that is that students can photograph whatever they want from the first moment they arrive. We do not have big rooms of printers or uh, big studios because um, I'm much more interested in photography existing outside of those confines. Again, Mm -hmm. not fulfilling templates. Um, They photograph whatever they want. It's career focused, but we have very, very few lecturers. We only have uh, one theory lecturer and myself and one uh, other practice-based uh, uh, lecturer who does um, two days a week. Uh, all other lecturing is done by professional photographers and art directors. Um, mm-hmm. The majority of the people who teach on the course have never taught before. 
So we currently have a module being run by uh, Wendy Carrot, um, Brian David Stevens, and Mark Wilson. All three of them are running a module. Uh, Tom Pilson mm -hmm. is running another module. Fiona Hayes, creative director for Condé Nast, is running another module. Now, these are not academics or lecturers. So that premise is completely different. And when I started to talk to people about what I was going to do, academics said, well, it'll never work. And everybody in, in the industry said, well, why wouldn't you teach any other way? Mm -hmm. So although it's been difficult, it's been proven to be really successful. So now what we're going to do is we're progressing it to the MA. What was interesting about the undergrad is during COVID, we moved a lot of stuff online as other people's, people did. But because of the premise of the course, that it isn't about dark rooms or studio or equipment, the students didn't have that expectation. So the moment the actual campus was closed, they didn't feel they were missing out on anything because they were getting all the teaching that they expected. And then in fact, I had students in Switzerland, I had students in Newcastle and in Kent making work much more relevant to who they are as people mm. and what they were interested in. They weren't tied to a building. So the mm. MA is a progression of that because we've kept the undergraduate partly online as well for certain modules because that's what the students asked for. And right. the, the MA is going to be taught online only no on campus, but it's going to have an international um, group of, of people feeding in and teaching. Mm -hmm. like we've got, we're going to have somebody from New York, somebody, a uh, few people from the States, somebody from Australia, um, hopefully someone from Sweden will be actually teaching the student and mentoring the students. But in the same way as we do with the undergrad, the MA is going to be, you can photograph whatever you want. And what we will do is we will provide the professional context for where that work sits. So if you mm -hmm. come and say, I'm currently shooting music, for example, and I want to move into the fashion environment, we will say to you, right, these are the rules of the fashion environment. And you might say, I want to do that. I'm like, well, mm -hmm. then I want to be a fashion photographer. Because, right. as you mm -hmm. know, in music, there are rules. In fashion, there are rules. Mm -hmm. So mm. what we aim to be is very, very uh, honest, and um, we want to ensure that the students get what they want out of it. So I think it'll be very different. It, it launches September 2024. Cool. Okay. And if people want to find out more about that, they can go onto the what, Oxford Brooks website. Um, not at the minute, because you've got a bit of a scoop. I'm still in the process yeah. of having the whole thing completed. It, it won't actually go up onto the website until September. But if you email me through the United Nations of Photography.com website, then um, I get back to everybody. I mean, we've already got 37 people who, um, who are interested in doing it. And they're all working, experienced photographers. So it's very wow. interesting, that idea that we were talking about, about what is the, the new platform? What's the new template? How do you work? I've been mm. putting this out on the podcast as to what we do. And people have been going, yeah. Actually, that's what I need to learn about. Mm. What's yeah. the capacity yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for you guys to do? You say you've got 37 interested. I mean, it is online only. Could you just keep going and see how many people? Well, it's a very scary. <laughs> I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago and they said, how many? And I said, well, it could be hundreds. And mm. I was like, well, actually, it can't be hundreds. 
And sure. it's a bit like the undergraduate course. We have a limit of 30 students. Um, there are a lot of st courses out there which are much, much bigger. But we have mm -hmm. a limit of 30 because that's how we can deliver a really bespoke uh, learning experience for the students. So right. um, so it'll be, it's a very good question. And in answer it, I don't know. Mm, cool. Interesting. I wish I did. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, if you've well, seen the first time I'm, running it, you can just you can see how it goes. Yeah, you know it's gonna it's gonna be um, uh, suck it and see, really. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, I mean, we could probably talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, <laughs> I know I could. I've got loads more I want to ask you, but we we do have to wrap it up. And I we always end the show by asking our guests. Um, Two questions, one of which is, well, basically to set the scene, you're on your desert island. What are you going to take as your photo book and what are you going to take as your camera? Right. Okay. Um, okay. Well, the camera bit is easy because I don't have any emotional attachment to any camera. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'll take my phone because that's kind of useful and it's all I need. Mm-hmm. Um, photo book do you know i would probably take the first photo book that i ever had um mm. that was a book that came out i think in 1973 and it's called the best of life and it was it was a compilation of photographs by all the great photographers that appeared in life magazine up until uh. 73 and right. I remember when I was at art school on my foundation, I made an entire book of um, kind of using the, the photographs in it to make work that was connected to song lyrics. Mm -hmm. So even at that point, that's, I'd, I was pretty kind of formed as to what I was going to end up doing. Um, so, yeah, I would, take a, I would take my smartphone and I'll take um, the best of life. Nice, amazing. So, if Good people choice. want to find out, uh, if people want to find out more about you, uh, where can they find you online? Um, well, uh, UnitedNationsOfPhotography.com is kind of the mothership uh, for all the articles and so forth. I think it's been going for about eight or nine years, something mm -hmm. like. That. Um, I'm not sure. I lose track. Um, so that's that's where all the articles are and where the podcast podcasts get. Um, Put up. We are on Twitter at Photo Life Pod. We're on mm -hmm. Instagram at Photo Life Pod, and um, you can get the a photographic life uh, podcast wherever you get your podcast. It's on Spotify and everywhere else as usual. Um, and so, yeah, there's two hundred odd to listen to. Amazing. Brilliant. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Um, yeah, and uh, thank you so much for your wisdom and insights. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it, and I think you're right. We probably could, and I do have a tendency to not stop talking, but we could probably <laughs> talk for ages. But um, thank you very much. Really appreciate it, and uh, good luck with all you guys are doing as well. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to the latest episode of the Exposed Negative podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by heading to our Patreon or doing one-offs. Uh, the details are on the website and the Patreon is patreon.com forward slash exposed negative. We'd love it if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash at exposed negative. 
And obviously, we're on Instagram, which is xnegative. If you want to follow us personally, mine is tombarnes.com on Instagram as, as and the website. <laughs> and then Greg's is at Greg Fennell, and that's F-U-N-N-E-L-L. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for taking the time to listen, and uh, hopefully you enjoy the next one.